I wonder if uh, you find the Bible relevant. That's an interesting question. Is the Bible relevant? What that means is, uh, well, I don't know. What does that mean to you? That might mean something different to you than it does to me. Is the Bible relevant? I think if you ask the society we live in, in general, to rate the relevance of the Bible, let's say compared to a newspaper, or a television program, which of those is more relevant? I'm not sure the Bible would come out at the top of the survey on the list of relevant things. You know, in this text that we've been looking at in the book of Hebrews, I think we find maybe an example of why that is. Uh, we're looking at, today, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 8, the whole chapter, which begins with this statement. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, in heaven. We have a high priest. That's the, we have this particular kind of high priest. And we might remember what kind of high priest was this. According to the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek is a person almost nobody has heard of. We have a high priest. How relevant is this? You know, in the world today, we don't have any priest. Do we? In fact, for most of us, I dare say, even most of us in the church, the Lord Jesus, or let's just say God, isn't really that relevant to what's going on every day in our lives. For most of the time, during most of our weekly weeks, we are not thinking of him. Because it's not necessary. Because I'm busy. I got things to do and I'm not sure how it matters. I don't really stop to think about whether the things I have to do are the things I ought to have to do. But I don't pay any attention to that. I'm busy. Things come into my face and I have to deal with it. How relevant is this talk of a high priest? Of any kind of priest frankly, because even if we are talking about God, how bad do you need a priest?
even if we are talking about God, if I ask you or any, let's say, the world, how are things between you and God? The typical answer is fine. And you have to say it about like that. Fine. Because I'm not really thinking about how things are between me and God until you ask, but since you asked, I think they must be fine. They must be. You know, that great theologian Jonathan Edwards said, whenever anyone imagines that there is a hell, they also imagine that they will not go to it. By the way, that's the same guy who wrote the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which he imagines every last one of us as a spider on the end of a spider thread held over a fire by God, and the only thing keeping us out of the fire is God. And God, it turns out, is not so inclined to keep us out of the fire. There's nothing about us that would make someone want to pull us away from the fire. Well, he had a different idea of God than us. Because if I ask you, what's the most important thing about God? If I asked almost anyone in the modern world, what is the most important thing about God? The immediate answer will be, He loves us. So what do I need with a priest? A a priest is someone who goes between me and God, who offers something to that God for my sake. He offers something to that God in order to make me okay with that God. Well, if I'm already okay with that God, I don't really much need a priest, do I? And yet, the point... And we already started with this priest talk two chapters earlier... The point we are making is we have a particular type of high priest. Well, here's the thing. We need one. We need one. And the book of Hebrews is going to talk about the temple now. And the temple is an illustration, we learn in this very text, a model of the real temple, the temple that's in heaven. And the temple that was on earth, strangely, is no more. We're going to talk about that. But the temple that was on earth was the singular meeting place between God, the one true God, the living God, the God of Israel, the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the only actual living God, creator of all things. The temple was the only place where people could meet with that God. Well, we don't have to say that God. We just say God because he's the only God. Well, in this text, we have a temple, the real temple that that temple was only a shadow of. We have a priest. I want to just shake you a little bit and say, you're not as acceptable to God as you think. You've been a Christian maybe for a hundred years like me. And I just want to tell you, you're not as acceptable to God as you might think. Just you. You are kind of like that spider. There's no good reason to pull you out of the fire. And yet he does anyway. Because he does love you. But you see, his love is not the important, the only important thing about him. He's also holy and utterly righteous. Hmm. Well, we have this sort of high priest. Let's remember what kind of high priest that is. It's the high priest of the end of chapter 7. This high priest holds his priesthood permanently, unlike the priests of Israel, because he possesses eternal life. He, the, <laughs> the text of Hebrews says, they were prevented from continuing by death. So they died so they couldn't continue as priests. He continues. He's alive forever. He continues. He is your high priest today, just like he was whenever this was written in the first century. He is your high priest, and he continues to be so. He's this kind of high priest. He's holy, holy, holy. He's innocent, unstained, not a sinner and exalted above the heavens. We're going to talk some more about that in a minute. Now, this is a high priest, and he can't be our priest if he's not one of us. He's a human being that is all of these things. Let me ask you, did you ever meet an innocent human being? Some of you have tiny little children. Any of them innocent? We call them innocent because they're not as sophisticated sinners like us, but they are. They, it doesn't take a kid very long to figure out how to be unrighteous. In fact, the kid doesn't have to figure that out. It comes quite naturally. He really has to figure out how to be good. If he's ever going to be good. Unstained. Not in the category sinner, exalted. This is the type of high priest we have, the man Jesus, who lived his whole life holy, innocent, unstained, not a sinner, and is now exalted. You know, I can't even imagine what kind of person that would be. I've never met anyone anywhere near that other than him. Now, the other, kind of, the other thing we say about this high priest is he doesn't need a sacrifice for his own sin because he doesn't have any. 
Because of that, he's capable of making the sacrifice that heals our sinfulness. Because he doesn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He offers himself as a sacrifice. Acceptable to God. Another thing about this high priest is he's appointed by oath as opposed to law. The other priests were appointed by law because they were in the right family. And the law said these guys can be priests. This high priest was appointed by God swearing to him that he was a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And finally, this high priest is a son. A son made perfect forever. This high priest, the man Jesus, is the actual eternal son of God made flesh to serve as our high priest. So that's the sort of high priest we have. And that's how we get to chapter 8. Now, the point of what we're saying is this is, this is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty. I'm sorry, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, I want you to think about priests serving in the temple. Were any of them seated ever? No, they were not. And especially the one that was going to take the once a year sacrifice of atonement into the holy place of the throne, the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne. That guy, he didn't sit down in there. He got in and out of there as quickly as possible. He brought the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. And he got out of there right away. He wasn't, no, no priest ever sits down. Priests serve standing, except this priest is seated. This priest said, it is finished. And sat down. This priest is sitting in the room the other priests were afraid to go into at all. Seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy place. Do you see that? A minister, this is verse 2 in Hebrews 8. A minister in the holy places. in the true tent, the true tabernacle, the real one. He's seated in the throne room right there at the right hand of the heavenly ark, seated there, having given his own life as the atoning sacrifice. The earthly priests served 
in a copy temple, a model. When I was a kid, we used to build models, cars and airplanes mostly. We built models, little replicas of the real thing. Now, I built a lot of model airplanes when I was a kid, and if you threw them hard enough, they'd fly for a minute. Well, nowhere near a minute, actually. They didn't fly very well, and they wouldn't keep flying, because they're not really airplanes. Well, this temple that was in the people of Israel, among the people of Israel, that was actually a real meeting place with God Almighty. But it's only a copy of the real thing. The real thing is in the heavens, is in the presence of our Father God. And so earthly priests served in the model. Jesus serves. This minute right now is sitting there serving in the heavenly temple. Superior temple. He also has a superior ministry that says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, I'm sorry, was as much more excellent than the old ministry, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So, Christ has a superior ministry, and what's his basis for saying Christ's priesthood is a superior priesthood to the earthly priesthood? He says, well, because Christ is mediating. Do you hear the present tense? Christ is mediating a superior covenant. They were mediators between Israel, the people of Israel, and God. In the Old Covenant, Christ is the mediator between God's people and God in the New Covenant, which is better, superior. Why? What makes this covenant better than that covenant? Well, it says right here, it is enacted on better promises. It's enacted on superior promises. The promises of the Old Covenant were not as good as the promises of the New Covenant. The promise that is actually embodied in the New Covenant, which, by the way, a covenant is another way of saying a formal promise. Well, he goes on, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. <laughs> and then he quotes 
that passage that we read from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Israel and Judah. Judah is the son of Israel from which the kings of Israel proceed. Well, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Still he's quoting from Jeremiah here. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So what are these better promises of the new covenant? Is the old covenant faulty? Did God, you know, tr- you know, he tried this and that didn't work, so he tried a new one? Uh, no. He, the old covenant's only faulty in the sense that it doesn't provide for what it requires. It's just the announcement of the requirements, and it's not the announcement of any fulfillment of those requirements. So the Lord finds fault with the people, not with the law. The problem here is they didn't keep it, and of course this didn't surprise him. In fact, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, you will read As you proceed through the book, you'll come through the passage where it says, now, when you don't do this, this will happen. When you do this, I'll bless you. When you don't do this, well, it's the opposite of blessing. I'll throw you out of my country is basically the promise. You can't live peacefully in the promised land if you don't keep this covenant. Yeah. And then, also right there in the book of Deuteronomy, is a promise very much like the promise in Jeremiah, where God promises that one day, after, you know, everyone's sort of dealt with this, then there will be a new covenant where the law will be heart on your heart, not just imposed on you from the outside, but you will be changed in this new covenant In other words, right in the Old Covenant is the announcement of what will one day replace it. And obviously we read from the book of Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament prophets, where God makes this announcement even more explicitly, and this certainly isn't the only text of Scripture with reference to the New Covenant in the prophets. Well, so... The obedience to the details of law was always to be uh, an expression of faith. In fact, they had, or should have had, a relationship to God's law sort of like ours. They trust him, 
They love him, so they love to do what he requires. It's supposed to be uh, an expression of faith and love toward God. You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Shema, the, the, the summary of the law, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your... This is the summary of the law, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The fault of the Old Covenant is that it doesn't change hearts. Wasn't really intended to. It was intended to demonstrate to all of us just exactly what kind of heart we have. And that is a heart that doesn't love or obey God. And so we have this external law, this conditional you'll be blessed if arrangement. And we had uh, sacrifices that don't actually solve the problem. They just provide a temporary shield. The sacrifices of the Old Testament didn't change anyone's heart. They just were sort of like, okay, God, if you could hold off on judging us, that'd be good. And I believe in the eternal covenant of God, between the persons of God, those sacrifices represent something like the promise of the sacrifice that makes all those unnecessary. And so they're sort of like this. Remember, Lord, that Jesus is coming. So the Old Covenant was a certain type of arrangement between God and his people that provided for God to have people out of which the person would come that would provide for all of us. And so here's the promise, the better promise of the New Covenant. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What's changing here is the hearts and minds of God's people. Not the law. Under the new covenant, people receive the cure of fallenness. They receive the cure of a fallen heart and mind. A heart and mind that seeks independence from God that wants to earn whatever they get it doesn't see God as provider but sees God as someone who owes me because I do the right thing he should because I'm good he will reward me that's an elevation of the person, not the God. Well, under the new covenant, that is cured because the new covenant is entirely the distribution of God's goodness 
for free. Well, it wasn't actually free, but you don't have to pay because of our great high priest who paid for us. Well, so he puts his law into my heart and on my mind. This is the spiritual capacity to trust God, to love God, to love my neighbor. This is Romans 8, 1 through 4, what the law could not accomplish. God accomplishes by the giving of what? The Spirit. And so the very Spirit, oh, by the way, this is also announced in the Old Testament prophets, that he will pour out his Spirit among his people, that the very Spirit of the living God, the third person of the triune God, will dwell among and in his people, transforming them and leading them to trust in the sacrifice of Christ, to love the God who gave this life a sacrifice for sin, and to respond in love to that love. What's changing here is the hearts and minds of God's people. The spiritual capacity is given, the indwelling spirit as a covenantal promise or provision. And then he says, consequently, they will all know me. He says, you won't have to tell each other, hey, you should know God. Because they all know you, know him already. Now, I think there's some, some of this that is yet to be realized, but it's available now, right? The writer of Hebrews is, keeps telling us, come on in, draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near, draw near, hold fast to the throne of grace. Christ is seated there interceding for you to this very day. You are welcome now in the place those old priests were afraid to go. They shall all know me. And this is, by the way, the cure that I talked about before. That in the new covenant, the promise is the cure, not just the cover. God isn't in the new covenant sacrifice. God isn't just covering your sins. He's curing them. He's removing them. So that the writer of Hebrews will talk about us having a clean conscience. Because God has so thoroughly removed our sinfulness from us. It is miracle of miracles. And so we know him. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you. If you know God, you're alive. If you don't know God, you're dead. And the only way to know God is to know Christ. And the only way to know Christ is for the Spirit to open your eyes to see him for who he really is. You see, all three persons of the triune God redeem you in this new covenant. This is so much superior. You can't, it's really not fair to put them on a scale next to each other. They shall all know me. We are repossessed by the cross of Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so we have access to God. 
I can pray and anticipate God's attention to my prayer. Now, people pray all the time, don't they? But if you pray without this priest, I don't know how much attention you can anticipate. You need this priest. And finally, he says, the great promises of the better, of the new covenant, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will stop remembering their sins. You know, in the book of Colossians, there's a text where it actually says that God has taken your list of sins, some of which you haven't even committed yet. He has taken your list of sins and nailed it to the cross of Christ and so utterly removed it from you so that Christ has borne all of you on the cross. So that Paul writes in the book of Romans, you died when he died and now you're born again into new life in him. Life in the spirit. Life in the community of the church. Life Knowing God, which means real life. So God has stopped keeping track of your badness. I'm still keeping track of mine. I guess I should stop it. I don't really need to do that. I should forget about it. It's hard to do. Oh, and you know what's really a lot harder? Is stopping keeping track of yours. But that's what God has done. And in fact, it's on the basis of God doing it for me that I'm called upon to do it for you and you for me. That I'm called upon to forgive. (laughs) Did you know that in the New Testament... The word forgive is the same as the word for divorce. Weird, huh? The word for forgive is a separation, a removal. So if you've done me wrong, I'm called upon to release. Like if I were getting a divorce, I would release my spouse. I'm called upon to release your sins from you. That is what God has done according to this text of Scripture. I will stop remembering their sins. And he does that for only one reason. And that is justice for your sins has been accomplished on the cross. This is a high priest that you need. If you're realistic about how righteous you are and how righteous God is. I heard a preacher say one time, you know, I'm closer, this will tell you the timing, I'm closer to Osama bin Laden than I am to Jesus on the righteousness scale. Substitute Hitler, name anyone, any great evil person. I'm 
closer to them than I am to Jesus on the scale of righteousness. If I'm realistic, I need this high priest, this sort of high priest. This chapter concludes like this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Obsolete, that's interesting. And what is becoming obsolete is it, and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, this tells us something about when the book of Hebrews was written. It must have been written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem because he says here that the priests are serving when he writes this. The earthly priests are still serving. But he concludes this chapter by saying that's about to end. And in fact, that did end. Do you realize that it is not possible today to live in the Old Covenant? It's just not possible. There's no temple, there's no sacrifices, there's no priesthood. That priesthood was done away with. Pure and simple. Now, some, from a historical point of view, someone might argue it was done away with by Rome. But I think we would have to notice, well, it's no longer needed. So God did away with it because now we have the superior priesthood of Christ. So there's no temple. There's no sacrifice. There's no, uh, I'll bless you if you live right. You can stay on my land if you're good Israel. And yet, there is this announcement of the new covenant that says, here's how to be a true Hebrew. A true son of Abraham. Trust in the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, in the new covenant, this is extended the true Israel now includes all of us non-Jewish people who put our faith in the Lord Jesus. And so now, even a Gentile can be a true Hebrew, a son of Israel, a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All it is, it's simple. It's the work of Christ. And I just say yes. I say, okay, I'm in. I trust in that. I trust in the Lord Jesus and not in my own righteousness. I trust in the work of the Spirit in my heart. I trust in God, in Christ, by the Spirit. Now, it's conceivable you're sitting here this morning and you haven't ever contemplated uh, what it means to be in the new covenant people, what it means to be a child of God in Christ. And so you always want to ask this question, what do I need to do? Here's my problem. I don't have an answer to that question because there's nothing left for you to do other than say, yes, I'll take it. Thank you, Lord. And to put your faith in what he has done not in what you might do. I, you don't have to come up here to the front to do this. You don't have to do anything. You just say, okay, I'll take that. 
I will submit myself to this new covenant, this blessing. And by the way, you're only doing that because the Spirit of God has worked in your heart to do it. Well, I hope that's the case for you already, and if not, now. We have this sort of high priest, just exactly the sort we needed. You might remember in chapter 6, he said, it's fitting, it's fitting that we should have such a high priest. We don't have a high priest that we don't need. We're, we don't possess, we have declared our independence from him. And in Christ, we can be restored. I hope you will be. Father, thank you for this grace you've shown to us. Lord, we know that our salvation is in your hands entirely. That you have done what is necessary sending your son, that he has done what is necessary in giving himself a sacrifice, and that the Spirit has done what is necessary in opening our eyes to see the reality of these things. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.